Good morning, Cornerstone. From the pulpit, from the stage, the word of God that has been coming forth in this season has been primarily from Jeremiah, um, but Jay has also been preaching through the five identities, the five pictures in the New Testament specifically, but also Old Testament, of who the church is, and so that he's going to continue preaching um, that series today with the church is, you were doing bride, right? Yep. The, the church as a bride. From a, from a geeky theological uh, person that I am perspective, uh, these next two times that Jay is preaching is really cool because of how they line up with Jeremiah. So last week there was this big thing about um, Judah and Israel being this unfaithful wife, right? This wife that was a harlot, this spouse that ran around all over the place, and yet God was this, this other spouse, this husband that was constantly saying, return to me, return to me, return to me. So it's really cool coming out of that and kind of the, the, a little bit of the heaviness of that, that we also get to hear this picture, this truth from uh, the New Testament about how Christ and how God views his people now which is really sweet. And then in two weeks, Barry's actually going to be talking about the temple and the idolatry that Judah and God's people had with the temple. And the week after that, Jay is going to talk about how the church is a temple. And so it's this really cool thing in my mind, this thread that's going through with this, the idolatry of being uh, unfaithful and the idolatry of putting all of our uh, eggs and our trust in a building or in the temple, contrast that with the beauty of who Christ actually calls us to be in those pictures. And that's a, that's a really cool thing that wasn't planned and ended up happening the way it is happening. So with that being said, I'm going to pray for Jay and we'll get rolling. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for being uh, with us. Thank you for your holiness, God. Thank you for uh, seeing us the way that you do see us. Thank you for your justice and your mercy all wrapped into that one heart that is yours, God. Uh, we pray for Jay, and we pray for our ears as you bring your word through him. Help us, just like we did in, in music, God, both declare who you are and also receive who we are in light of who you are, God. So we ask that our hearts uh, would be cultivated to receive that seed, um, that that would be sown um, more into us, and that there would be fruit that would come about um, maybe not today or tomorrow, but in the long term, God, as you are building up your kingdom and as you are washing your bride and as you are loving your bride. So we thank you for today. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, like Justin said, we're going to talk about uh, the church is a bride. We talked about the church as a flock so far, and then um, we talked about the church is a body. And now we're going to talk about um, the church is the bride of Christ. One of the great, in, in my opinion, one of the great assaults um, by the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light over the course of the 20th century was the assault on marriage. Um, and uh, we need to be very careful as the church about the way that we currently depict the uh, legislative norms of homosexual marriage being a church that for the greater part of the 20th century actively embraced divorce and actively hid adultery. Um, we are sleeping in the bed which we made through the desanctification of marriage in our own um, taking in of the culture, of uh, popular culture's way of seeing divorce become a norm and adultery and uh, sexual selectiveness outside of marriage become a norm and cohabitation become a norm. Um, we lost our cultural way somewhere along the way. And uh, it has been to uh, a grave, grave detriment. Because when we talk about the fact that the church is a bride, um, 
having the correct picture, I think that the, the, the picture and the idea of being a bride um, is it's such an important thing to actually have like a vision of, to actually have something to be directed to and engaged by. It's a shame um, on some, uh, on many levels that um, it's hard for all of us to identify with this. You've heard me say this before. Uh, I'll say it again. Every person has the image of God within them. The image of God was declared in both male and female, Genesis 1, that in male and female he created them in his image. Every woman is a son of God. Every man is the bride of Christ. It is a whole lot easier to teach women to be sons than it is to teach men to be brides. (laughs) So even like today, as we step toward this idea of being a bride, like I'm just really aware of a lot of the cultural trappings that we have, especially if you're a dude. Um, And so I just wanted to take a a second um, here right up front and do some spiritual hard drive work, um, if you don't mind. So this is what I would like. I would like for all the women to lay hands on the men around them. So you can stand up if you need. Let's, let's, let's just all stand up. All right, just gather around each other, whatever. I'm going to lead us in a prayer that God helps us understand and receive this. Uh, as men, particularly. God... Um, Actually, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I shouldn't do that. Sherry, come up here with me. Yeah. Why am I praying? I'm, I'm a dude. Yeah, somebody help Josh out, please. pray what I was just going to pray. Oh. <laughs> okay, yeah. how's that work? I want you to pray for the men that we can receive what it is that God has for us as the bride of Christ. You're a woman. And, uh, <laughs> Nothing like being on the spot. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so it's the, it's the idea that like feminization um, is something that men are deeply terrified of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be named as the bride of Christ and our identities is something that we've actually been fought against. Every man here in this room was born knowing how to cry perfectly fine. Right? We all did it really well. Somewhere along the way, somebody told us that boys don't, you know, if you're a big boys don't cry. That, 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 that's a defeminization. Um, that, that, and, and we're terrified of being feminized as men. Um, so to be the bride of Christ, I think there's a naturally inherent spiritual bias of fear against that. Um, That's inappropriate. Okay. All right, let's join together. Father, I first off say that um, give me ears to hear what you would have for us to pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your presence among us. I ask God that the men here 
would be able to receive by your Son and your Holy Spirit an aspect, an impartation of an aspect of your personhood. The male and the female part of who you are as God. I pray that you would um, release yourself among us in this way today. I pray that you would bring a alignment of your definitions, not our personal definitions or our cultural definitions. I pray that there would be a an ability to inhabit mercy and truth. Mercy is often seen as a, a feminine quality. Uh, but for the men to house both mercy and truth. Thank you for your great kindness to us in setting aside this time where we can seek your face in this way and we can ask for something greater than our pigeonholed uh, definitions and ideas and notions. So I pray for a fullness for all of us, but particularly masculinity today, to engage and encounter you in the way in which you have for us through the picture of bride. And we pray this with thanksgiving and great joy that we are your sons. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so what is the church? The church is a bride. Let's think about this from the uh, perspective of God, right? from each one of the uh, members of the Godhead. Um, so when you think about the church as a bride, who is the father in relation to the church as a bride? Now remember, we're not talking about American marriage here. We're talking about Jewish marriage. This is a biblical picture. Of bride. This is a biblical picture of wedding. So, who is father in regard to the bride? He arranges the marriage. Right? He arranges the marriage. There's no dating. <laughs> There's no dating in an ancient Judaic construct. Right? The father knows his daughter and he chooses well for who it is that she would marry and his goal in all things is both for her to be happy, but also for her to be provided for. Right, so he's looking for someone who is a good complement to his daughter. He's also looking for someone who is a, um, a faithful man, who's got the virtues that it is that he knows that his daughter requires in order to lead her through her life. Now, to us, there is, I don't know many cultural things that are weirder than this. To, uh, you know, to our current present-day like romantic American situation. Um, but it, it, what's really interesting is if you, talk, if you talk to people who come from arranged marriage societies, they don't, not everybody's like, oh, I wish I was American. <laughs> like, th- th- there is not necessarily a negative view of this from 
everybody that we would think of. Like, this is not one of those great social ills that we think of. God arranges the marriage. He knows exactly who the daughter is, and he has arranged the perfect bridegroom. So who's the son in relation to the church as a bride? Well done. He is the groom. He's the one that we marry. He's the one that has been set aside for us. He is the one who sees us and knows us. So when you read all of those Old Testament concepts about the people of God being led by God into uh, like being brought into the desert to be wooed, falling in love, when you read Song of Songs, when you read about the adultery that Israel commits against God, like this is all very, very Jesus-centric concept. Jesus is the groom. The Spirit is the matchmaker, the counselor, the radiance. The Spirit is is the one who is bringing this thing around. He's making it happen. He, He sees her. He knows who she is, where she is, where she's coming from what it is that she requires to to see Jesus, the counsel that she requires to be led into a healthy relationship there, the radiance on the face of the bride, you know, as as this marriage is happening and as this thing is taking place. Like the Godhead is very, very active in and through all of these pictures, arranging, marrying, making this thing happen. This This is a Christ- God-centric model, we think (laughs) 50-50, right? So, like, she needs to be at least 50% interested. He needs to be at least 50% interested, and then they might get married. A lot of us in this room would be like, yeah, I started off a lot lower than that. (laughs) Or my spouse started off a lot lower than that. That's how it was. That's how it was for my poor wife. Um, the, the, The way we met, I got kicked in the mouth in a soccer game. I had braces, and my tooth broke. So we ended up, she ended up getting a ride back when I had to come back here to PA um, to get my tooth fixed. And so our first experience together was in the backseat of a car for six hours. I could be a pretty intense person, you know, in that space, especially when there's like a really pretty girl in the backseat with me. And so, you know, I was trying all of my tricks, none of which worked. Um, <laughs> None of which worked. And so it was sort of this, this strange courtship. Where that, but then we knew each other. We saw each other from afar across campus. You know, and I would watch the way she interacted with people. So like, wow, this is, this, is a, this is somebody I'm interested in. This is somebody that's worth pursuing. I would talk to her from time to time, arrange the way to like sit with her at lunch or to run into her accidentally after a game or whatever it might be. You know, like, I, I, I was aware, and I saw who she was, and the way that she acted, and, and there was just this, sort of this, I didn't know it was God, I was just being a guy, right? It was sort of like this, this movement, this engagement together, as we met, and then just walked in this journey together of knowing and being together, and the Lord is just orchestrating this situation that was completely outside of me. The beauty that we have is that God is the orchestrator of this. He's the one that's making all of this happen, mainly because you and I are, are dead in our trespasses and sins. So it doesn't really work when you're dead um, to go through a courtship process. God quickens, he calls, he engages. Right? And, and his 
heart of love is being spoken over and over and over again, like come and discover, come and know, come and be with, come and engage. There's just this beautiful walk that God leads us on as we fall more and more in love with him. The reality of the church being a bride is something that is a God-centric concept. We exist, this is a key phrase, we exist for him. We exist for him. So when you think about the uh, four things that the church devotes itself to, the church is a bride. So in regard to the word, fellowship, ordinance, and prayers, these four devotions of the church, what is the word in regard to the church being the bride? Remember, this is the word of God. This is the word of Christ. So when Christ, as the groom, is speaking to the church... Vows? That's good. That's really good. I would suggest it's washing and naming. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is a lot of teaching about marriage, a lot of teaching about the, uh, the way that husbands and wives interact together and what it means for us to be in relationship. And the picture that we're given is the picture of Christ and his bride. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word of God cleanses the bride. It cleans her. This is an experience that you can see in this idea of... um, of being cleansed by God's word all, all throughout scripture. The Bible is, and the word of God is often brought about as a, a cleansing agent. Right? And Jesus tells Peter, you, you are already clean by the word that I've spoken unto you. The, the, the word of God cleans the bride. It makes, her, it makes her clean. Where the enemy throws deception and mud and muck and accusation, the word of God cleans all of that off. It does so through the process of naming we just talked a lot about this upstairs this morning in our, in our class together as we talked about being rooted in our identities in Christ. So naming is an identity-based process. This is who you are. Right? This is your name. This is your identity. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is given the gift of naming. God calls him, God makes him, and then God calls him to join him in his work by walking all around the garden and seeing the things that are in the garden that are alive and then naming those things. So he sees a bear. He doesn't have a word for bear, but he looks at it. He looks at the essence of whatever this thing is. And he says, bear, now you will be called that name. Why? Because that's what I see you being. He doesn't have some like lexicon. He's got no context for this at all. I, I, I see this animal. I see this living thing. What is that? That's a giraffe. I see this living thing over here. What is that? That's a rabbit. Right? Like, so, so he's looking at something that he has no context for, seeing its essence, and then naming it. Now, Adam and God didn't have a conversation before God put him into that deep sleep. Dude just took a nap. And he woke up. And there was another living thing that was there, that was unlike any other living thing that he'd seen to that point. 
He never said to a bear or a giraffe or a rabbit, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, you are just like me. You're the same, you're the same thing I am. Adam was very aware that he and the animals were different, but when he saw her, this is now different. You're the same thing I am. And Adam, with his gift of naming, looks at her, sees her essence, and names her, you are a woman, because you are taken out of man. And a continual work of a husband is naming his wife, seeing her essence, and just drawing it out. And where the world wants to throw things at it and accuse her and give her nasty words about who she is or who she isn't. And in all the relational conflict that she may or may not have, all the deception that the enemy wants to throw at her, a husband's continual job is to, with the water of the word, to wash his wife and to name her. That's not you. I know you heard today that you're worthless. That's not you. That's not you. You have great worth. That's a name it. I, 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 knew, I know you heard today that you're high maintenance. You are not high maintenance. You are complex, and that's how God made you. And that's beautiful. We value that. Right? Naming her. This is what Jesus does for his church. He names us over and over again. So that when the church gets off the beaten path, he draws her back in with the washing of his word and the reminder of her identity in Christ. What is fellowship in regard to the church being the bride. I'll just give it to you. Keep moving. I'm running out of time. All right. It's the common pursuit of the groom. The common pursuit of the groom is fellowship. When we come together, why do we come together? We can all go be part of a club somewhere else if we wanted to. But there's a reason why we come together. There's a reason why we fellowship. There's a reason why we gather. And it's to pursue the groom. To engage him together. Like, have you seen him? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he incredible? Next, the ordinance. Vows. Ritual reminder of love. We're going to take the sacrament. We're going to take the Eucharist here at the end of our, our time together after this teaching. What does Jesus say that the blood is when he gives it to the, uh, the disciples? This cup is the uh, new covenant. Is the new covenant in my blood. How is a marriage made? It's covenant. If you have a wedding and you don't have vows and you don't have covenant, you don't have a wedding. You have a ceremony of some kind, but there's nothing that's happened. Right? When these two exchange vows and give covenant, it is a reminder of what it is that has sealed them together. It's a speaking of it, and then that reminds them of what it is that seals them together. When we come to the table time and time and time again, it is that reminder of the covenant. But it's a covenant that Jesus has spoken to and over us. That covenant is held fully within himself. And even when we stray and when we run to lesser lovers, he never moves. And it's his covenant that we keep coming back to. So when we stray and when we run after lesser lovers, we call that sin. right? We call that breaking fellowship. And he continually brings us back. And what do we know cleanses us from that strain? What do we know cleanses us from those lesser loves? What do we know that cleanses us from that sin? It's the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. And so we come here again to the cross of Christ to do what? To be washed again and to remember the covenant. To remember the vow, his vow, 
his vow to us. That is his most attractive quality, right? I mean, the fact that he'll take all of this and all of our stuff, all of our junk, all of our brokenness, all of our failure, all of that upon himself and hang it on his cross and pay for it forever and ever so that you and I can have unbroken, love, consummated relationship with the God of the universe. This is what life is about. Every time we come to the table, it's that reminder of the covenant, that reminder of the love that is spoken over and over, and we remember. Prayer becomes corporate intimacy. Prayer becomes corporate intimacy. You know, life can sometimes, like, get away from you and uh, sort of be like, you know, you just, things are just moving and you're working and and you're hanging out with friends, or you're dealing with kids, or you're uh, doing whatever needs to be done around the house, you know, and things just... But there are times when Sherry and I look at each other, and it's just sort of like, we need to talk. <laughs> like, it's been... How did, we, how did we lose each other in this? You know, at the end of a long day, it's just simply easier to turn Netflix on than it is to process what's been going on in our lives, you know, you just want to, like, check out because life's been that heavy, but if life's been that heavy, isn't that the time that we most need probably to connect with somebody that we can actually process it with, and there's these times where it's sort of like, where, where did that go, like, where did that, where did that connection go, that processing space, that, that intimate engagement, communication, that's what prayer is meant to be, prayer is meant to be that corporate, intimate engagement, that corporate, intimate communication where the bride is speaking to her groom and where the words are bringing the life and the engagement is real. When we think about being the bride from the perspective of mission and leadership and application, this is what I've been really wanting to get to. So forgive me for like just glossing over a lot of really important stuff. But mission, what's the mission of the bride? Exactly, right? Weird. What's the mission of the bride? I would suggest to you, the mission of the bride is beauty and magnetism. Beauty and magnetism. I'm going to hit all three of these because they all three work together. Leadership in the context of the church as the bride. Leadership is called to wash the bride in the water of the word. Wash the bride in the water of the word. Right now, I'm leading from up here. And I'm speaking God's word. God willing, you're being washed. As this is starting to break down deceptions or things you believed or not believed about yourself wrongly. Washing in the water of the word. The application of what it means to be the church as the bride is learning to receive. Learning to receive. So, we don't do weddings in here very often because it's not, you know, it's not like an old church with beautiful stained glass window and that kind of stuff. Um, but when we do do weddings, it's like, it works like this. So the bride is out there. She's gotten ready like in one of the Sunday school rooms or whatever. And so me or Justin or Matt or whoever's doing the ceremony is up there on the platform and uh, this door is closed and then it opens 
and the other people walk down, and then and then she walks down, right? And so the music is playing, and she's walking down, and uh, you know, with her father, whoever's processing her in, and there's this, uh, you know, and what does everybody do when the bride comes in? They stand up. That's right. Um, there's honor and recognition of who she is in this in this ceremony. Like this isn't a something that we've all seen many many times. You know, but, but this is something that we all engage in a new, in a fresh way every time. And she comes down, and at Cornerstone, we'll always make a center aisle. And she comes over here, and then she walks down this center aisle, and she stops here. And then it's like, sort of like, here she is. And the bridegroom is up there, and there he is. And here's everybody, family, friends, sitting or standing and watching and ready to engage this together. And so the bride then turns and she's here and she's looking at him and his eyes are full of love and excitement, you know, and groom's usually like, you know, that's the point where like just emotion really takes over. You see your bride you know, it's just this incredible magical moment, and there's this deep connection. And she gets up here, and she's, she's ready, and she takes off her backpack, and she opens it up, and she pulls out these, like, these, like she was outside in the mud, like she was playing, um, like in making some, like, figurines. And she takes these figurines, and she's like, I don't have much to convince you to marry me, but if you'll take these, I'll just keep making these for you the rest of our lives together. It's weird, right? I mean, what I just said is like the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> because what's happened is she's been out in the dirt playing, you know, and she's been out there, and so she's actually just covered in mud when she comes in here. And this is oftentimes, though, how we work it spiritually, where we come up to the front here as the bride of Christ with our little backpack on. And we get up here to the front, we're like, oh, it's you. You know, I'm sorry I look like this, but I, I've been making this stuff for you. This is, this is why you should love me. And then somebody along the way told us that Jesus hates that. And Jesus hates you for offering that. And if you weren't so dirty to begin with, and stupid, in and of yourself, then you'd realize that he loves you no matter what. And Jesus is up there going, I love you! I love you! Can't you see that? Can't you see what I did? I loved you since the beginning. So now all that junk, you can just put that junk away. You know, just come up here and let's get married. Why? Because this is just how it needs to be. Dang it, I died on the cross for you after all. I shouldn't have had to do that, but, well, I love you, and it's sort of who I am, so I guess we got to get married now. And I don't think that's a far stretch from how we've approached the gospel. Where, you know, our gospel declarations have been all about, like, you can't do anything to earn or deserve God's love. You can't work hard enough to deserve God's love. He doesn't want the things that you can offer him. But man, I got to tell you, if I'm real with you today, I've done that so many times. I tried to convince God why he should love me. Like, can't you see what I'm doing here? Can't you see how hard I'm working? 
I'm out in the mud and the dirt, just like you told me to. I'm out with all these people that you're asking me to help. You know, I'm out going to work. I'm out taking care of my kids. I'm out paying my bills. I'm out doing all this stuff. I come in here, and what I get from you is just like a... All I hear from you is that I need to be more clean. Don't you see how hard I'm working, though? Like, isn't this all for you? But but it's this picture... It's this picture of, of the bride coming down completely dirty, completely filthy, and coming down here to the front. And it's like the courtship and the love never happened, or like the cross never happened. And we get down to the front and we say to the groom, like, please love me. Like, please, don't, don't reject me. I've been rejected before, and it hurts. I've been abandoned before, and it's killing me. Like, I've experienced hurt on top of hurt through this, the ins and outs of life. So please don't you do this to me too. And because I'm so afraid that you might, here's what I can offer you to show you I matter. Here's what I can bring. I can do this. I can do that. I can make that. Oh, I didn't do it right. So here we are again. And, and here I am again, just begging for love. The, the, the beauty, I think the, one of the beauties of the bride coming down here is that she carries nothing with her except the beautiful adornment. Right? It's just those flowers. And that's just to make it look cool. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And she comes with nothing to offer. She comes with nothing to offer but herself. And the groom, the groom, well, in, the homo, in, the, in the human construct, it's, it's the same. They're both just two broken people you know, who are choosing to love each other. And one of the great ironies of pastoral ministry is counseling people and then doing ceremonies where you realize that what happens during a wedding ceremony is two people look at each other and they go, I'm really going to hurt you and you're really going to hurt me and we're going to stick it out. Like that, that's, that's what they say. This is going to be really hard. We're going to have sickness. We're going to have health. We're going to have good times. We're going to have bad. We're going to be really poor, you know, for richer, for poor, you know, richer is a, a relative statement. Um, but, but in, and, in and through all of that, I'm going to stick it out for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life. Until death do us part. This, we're in this together. And, and that is what marriage is. And that's this awareness. And here is Jesus, who when his vow, when he makes his vow, when he makes his covenant with us, there is none of that from him. Because he's not going to hurt us. He never hurts He's not going to shame us. Our God is not someone who shames his bride. Jesus is not going to ever tell us that we don't measure up. He's not ever going to say that we're not beautiful. His whole purpose is the glorification of his bride. But did you see why? Because I think a lot of times we've been told that the purpose of the gospel and the reason for this whole marriage is so that you and I, we can walk in this room with Christ and we come up here to the front and maybe we sort of like get past that thing where we try and offer him something. So we actually come down here and we look at him and he looks at us and we don't offer him anything. All we do is have this great connection together and together we receive you know, these vows, his covenant, the one-sided covenant that he draws us into. And then we are his bride. And then what are we supposed to do? 
We're supposed to be his bride. Like We're supposed to be the beautiful bride that we're supposed to be. Why? So that he can take us, the church, in all of our beauty. And he can take us and he can show us off to the rest of the world. And he can take us to the people who don't know him. And he can say, look, look how beautiful she is. Look how incredible she is. Like, don't you want that? Don't you want to have a part of that? Don't you want to consume that? And that's not the story. Look at chapter 5, Ephesians. That he might, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. Why? So that he might present the church to who? To himself. To himself. I think this is such a mind warp from what we've been taught. God does not whore you out to the world. God does not have a purpose for marrying you other than that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. That's it. That's, that, that, that's all. That, that's, his, that, that's the whole point. And the whole point of his washing you with his word and the whole point of him making you glorious and without spot or blemish by the washing of the water of the word and by his own blood, by his own presence is so that it's you and him. And when you and he get married, right? when that, when that union happens, when there's that joining in covenant, he doesn't turn to you and go, now please don't screw this up for me. Like I'm really trusting you. I've got a big mission. I can't get it done myself. That's why I married you. But you and me together, kiddo, we can make this happen. There is one reason why he loves you. And it's because he loves you. And he, he, the purpose, the reason why his own, uh, the reason for your glorification, the reason for your washing is for him to present you to himself. This is about you and him. This is about you and your groom. This is about you and the lover of your soul. It's not about you and your usefulness. It's not about you and what it is that you bring to the table. It's not about you and your backpack. It's not about you and the dirt that's been thrown on you from all the life that you've been living. It's just you and him. And he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And there's nothing that can ever take that or break that or change that or move that. And he will never move. And he is the one who redeems and restores and calls and cleanses. We see this in the people of God in Ezekiel 16. Listen to these words. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. So here a baby is born and, and she's aborted. I mean, she, she's, she's brought to full term and she's delivered but then immediately thrown away, immediately cast off. Whoever it was that gave birth to her, 
no longer wants anything to do with her. And they don't care for her at all. They don't clean her off from the birth blood. Right? They don't, they don't uh, wrap her in warm clothes. There's a field, and they just toss her out. And there she is, completely, hopelessly lost. When I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you. I made my vow to you. Not we made vows together. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth. I shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you declares the Lord God. So this aborted child, cast off, God redeems, restores her, draws her to himself, makes a vow, his vow to her, enters into covenant, his covenant with her, and she becomes his. And then his activity in the marriage is to make her beautiful. So he just puts the most incredible stuff, gives the most incredible clothes and this incredible jewelry. And he takes care of her hair and he, and he, and he puts beautiful shoes on her feet. And she's, she's, she's completely, fully radiant. Her whole, not just her appearance, but her whole identity has changed. Remember, she started off as an aborted fetus cast off into a field. Ezekiel says that she goes from being this, this cast off child to actually becoming royalty. Her whole identity has changed and she becomes a member of the king's family as his bride. And that's supposed to be the end of the story. That's it. That's what it, it's just supposed to be the two of them living in love together. And the next phrase, everything turns. As Ezekiel says this, but you trusted in your beauty. You trusted in your beauty. The, beauty. the trust got transferred from the groom to the beauty. And then there's just this downward, vicious spiral that the bride takes herself through. So much pain, so much heartache, so much brokenness, so much division. You can read Ezekiel 16 and see it yourself. It's so not pretty. But even in the midst of all that, that chapter ends with this but I will remember my covenant with my bride. And I will not forget her. 
And she's done horrible things to him in this story. All kinds of adultery and prostitution and terrible stuff. And she's gone after other things, other loves. And the bride never, or the groom never moves. It's the same story we see in Hosea. You know, where Gomer's running around on Hosea, sleeping with all kinds of other people, and he just will not be moved from the fact that this is my bride. This is my bride. And I love her. And we, the bride, we test his love. Do you really love us? Do you love us if we do this? Do you love us if we do that? We push back against these things. We run away in insecurity. He's never proven himself unfaithful. He's never proven himself less than exactly who he said he was. But, but we in ourselves, we just we keep this churning because there's so much that we want to bring to the table, I think. There's so much that his love is so deep, so miraculous, so marvelous that there's just some way, there's something in the back door that he's going to hit us from back here. Or there's going to be this piece of shame or this piece of rejection or this piece of abandonment. But that's not our groom. And he refuses to see us as anything that we actually are. The beautiful bride of Christ, fully washed in his word, cleansed by his blood, and presented to him. We are for him in all of the glory that he intends for us to walk in. That's our destiny. That's our reality. That's who we are. Man, I lose hold of that so fast. (laughs) In so many different ways. As these other whispers come in. Come over here, do this. Come over here, engage this. Come over here, think of yourself like this. He doesn't love you. Not when you act like that. And I keep coming back to him time and time again. Like, Jesus, here's what I have. I preached a really good sermon. (laughs) Like, do you love me more? Right? Like I was a really, uh, I know I screwed up the other day being a dad, but this day being a dad, I was really good. Like do those two things cancel each other out? <laughs> As though he's sitting there just keeping track of all of the ways that I've screwed up and all the ways that like his love is debited and credited to my account as a result. But that's not how I love my wife. That's not how we enter into covenant together in marriage. Our covenant is his covenant, and his covenant never fails. Never, ever fails. And so those words of rejection and abandonment and that hurt and all of those other stories and words from other people, the wounds that you have in your heart and on your life and in your story, those things that identify you, that's what Jesus wants to wash. That's what we're going to step toward now as we engage the Eucharist together. Today's a day of washing. As you take the bread and tear it off and dip it into the cup, and as you receive again his covenant with and toward you, let his love just wash over you. Feel his heart. See his eyes. Let the beauty and the wonder of the bridegroom consume you as you consume him. And remember his deep, abiding, never-ending love for you.
we've heard and experienced so many other things, but those things aren't him. He loves you, and he loves you because you're his, and his covenant will never, ever fail. Thank you, God, for the beauty that you've given us in Christ. We are your bride. You are the bridegroom. And we long to be people who are set free from all of the trappings, wounds, deceits, accusations, all those things that make us just terribly, horrifically dirty, that make us feel unworthy, unlovely, that define us wrongly, that say that we are something other than what you've made us to be. God, set us free to receive again your love, to experience again your love, to be washed by your love, and together as Cornerstone today, this morning, to be the bride of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's uh, remain standing for the benediction. If you wanted to take the posture of your hands uh, turned upright, Cornerstone, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. Receive your beauty, the beauty that comes through Christ. When you receive your beauty through Christ, you return that back to the beautiful one. When you receive the beauty from Christ within you, you return it to the one that made you that way. So Cornerstone, you do not keep your own beauty for yourself, but you house it for the glory of the Lord and for those around you. Cornerstone, I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. Thanks be to God. Go, and uh, thanks for being here. Uh, Go with the Lord.